Good morning. It's Christmas time. Merry Christmas. It isn't wonderful up here. You know, um, many of you may know, but I, uh, I have three kids, and my middle boy, Kurt, is autistic. And he's um, 19, 18 years old, and he's a big boy, six feet, 240 pounds, and that kid loves Christmas. I mean, he is, by, by Halloween, he is all about Christmas. I mean, 24-7, every Christmas special, every children's special that exists, he is watching, 24-7. And I have heard Rudolph countless times. I know every line of Rudolph there is, and there's actually a couple different Rudolph specials. And his favorite is the Rudolph where Rudolph finds that he's a misfit, he doesn't fit in, and, um, and so Rudolph goes to an island of misfit toys, if you remember that particular special. And Kurt has watched that one many, many times. Well, on <coughs> Wednesday morning of this past week, Kurt decided that he also is a misfit. And so I, about 6 o'clock in the morning, I get up to go to the bathroom, and I thought I heard the door close, the front door. Now, Kurt is often up at 3 in the morning, singing at the top of his lungs about Rudolph and everything else, and we're always chasing him back to his room. Well, I didn't hear him at 6 o'clock, so I, heard the, I thought I heard the door close. I went downstairs. It's quiet. I didn't check his room, and the door's locked, so I'm thinking, okay, I must have imagined that, right? So my wife goes down about quarter to seven, and the front door opens, and Kurt comes walking in. And she's thinking, well, that's strange. He was outside. Huh, okay. Five minutes later, the police call us. And they say, do you know that your son was down the street? And apparently what Kurt decided to do is he is going to go to the island of misfit toys and he's going to be independent so he goes down the street about four houses and he goes to the front porch of one of our neighbors he sits on their chair and he starts singing at the top of his lungs at six in the morning that he is now independent and the guy says to his wife dear what are you singing down there i'm not singing anything and he looks out, and there's Kurt, rocking on the rocker, singing at the top of his lungs. And he turns to Kurt, and he says, buddy, you don't belong here. So Kurt thinks, well, they don't even want me on the island of misfit toys. So he, he goes back, and he just comes home. Well, meanwhile, the couple called the police, and the police know a little bit about Kurt and the situation, so they tracked down where he had come from. And fortunately, by the grace of God, Kurt came home. Well... <laughs> We're not going to talk about Rudolph this morning, but we are going to talk about another great Christmas story that is true, and that is out of Matthew chapter 2, the story of the Magi coming to Judea, and coming to Jerusalem, and then coming to Bethlehem. So let me just open us with a word of prayer. Lord, we do thank you this morning for your grace and mercy to us. We thank you, Lord that you are all-powerful, almighty, and we thank you for your presence and your spirit here with us. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that as we look into your word this morning, as we uh, just open up your word, that your spirit will be here, and Lord, that we will be sensitive to your leading, that you will work in our lives and our hearts, and that you will be glorified. I pray in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. 
So as we look at the story of the Magi, I actually consider it to be the first missions conference. You know, we're going to have our missions week in five weeks, but I really consider this to be the prelude of our missions conference because it's a story of Gentiles coming and worshiping the living Christ. And it, it's a reminder that God is, the story of the gospel is universal for all who believe. Anybody who comes to know, anybody regardless of nationality and background is welcome to hear the gospel. And this story in Matthew chapter 2 is a message that Matthew put in there to say to all of us that this gospel is universal. And so as we look at this, I want to ask, I want to give a little bit of background before we really get into the second chapter. The first question is, who are the Magi? Who are these guys? Well, the word Magi actually in the Greek is Magos, and strictly speaking, it actually refers to a priestly class out of Persia, which is today Iran. So many people interpret that to say, well, they clearly were Persians. The thing of it is, there's a couple of problems with that. Um, <clears throat> and I have a tendency to believe that actually they came from Babylon. Because the word magi doesn't strictly have to be a priestly class. It can actually have a broader meaning of teacher, instructor. And there's two reasons why I think they probably came from Babylon. First, the Babylonians at this time were well-known astrologers. They were really into astrology, and they really examined and watched the skies. So if a star appears or something different in the heavens appears, it's probably the Babylonians that are going to see it. Okay? Uh, the second thing is, 500 years previous to this event, the Jews were exiled. And where were they exiled to? Babylon, right? So we know in Babylon there was a large community of Jews, okay? And so because of that, the Babylonians were very familiar with Jewish teachings, Jewish prophecy, the Torah, the Talmud, everything. So they would have been familiar with the prophecies, including the rising up of a star that occurs in Numbers 24, 12. So when you put those two together, most likely the Magi are from Babylon. Uh, in fact, I'm going to show you a map, and I'm going to show you how far they probably had to travel. Now, this is actually a map of the exile. When you look here, you can see that the Judeans, when they were exiled to Babylon, they, they went along this red route. So they, don't go, they didn't go directly from west to east, because that's right through the heart of the desert, and they would have died. So most likely, when the Magi come to Judea, they follow the same route because it's the route of going along the rivers. And obviously, they needed, they needed to be able to drink. They needed some sustenance. And so they probably followed these rivers. Well, that's about 900 miles, if you can imagine. So they traveled about 900 miles for probably two to three months to make it to Judea. Just to give you an idea of the distances that are involved here. So how many were there? How many Magi were there? We don't know, exactly. We have no idea. <laughs> Traditionally, in the Western church, we always say three. Most likely we say three because there were three gifts presented, right? Gold, 
incense, and myrrh. But, but this is the other reason why I don't believe, I believe why we think there's three or less. Ironically, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, they think there was 12. That's traditionally what is believed, is that there are 12. We have no idea, okay? The scriptures don't tell us, Matthew doesn't tell us, and, um, but I would argue that it was probably a pretty large number. And that's for two reasons. One is they're probably not gonna travel 900 miles. They need sustenance. It's, it's gonna be a huge trip. It's gonna be a lot of different um, uh, logistics involved. Probably it was a large car caravan going. Secondly, is that when they arrive in Jerusalem, every, they get the attention of everybody, including King Herod, right? I don't think three guys coming into Jerusalem is going to get the attention of King Herod. It was something big happening. So I would say it was a large number traveling that arrives in Jerusalem and then goes on down to Bethlehem. And then the last question is, what was the star they followed? Again, we don't know. Now, you'd be amazed as you look back in history how this has been debated over the centuries. I mean, and people talk about all kind of theories. I've looked at a number of the different theories, and one, the one that I probably like the most is that, believe it or not, but the Chinese astronomers in the year 5 BC recorded the occurrence of a comet, a very bright, long-tailed comet that appeared in the Capricorn region of the sky for 70 days. And it's actually recorded historically. And now there's actually been a, a major book written from a Cambridge professor on this comet and why he believes that is the star. There's, there, there's, there's a couple reasons I really like it. First is that it would seem to me that for the Babylonians to see something in the sky that was so, that they would literally pack up, travel for 900 miles to Jerusalem, it had to be something very significant in the sky, okay? It wasn't just like a little star that they just happened to see for the first time. I mean, it must have been something bright, significant that really caught their attention, and they tied back to the prophecy. Uh, secondly, is that when they say in verse 2 that they saw the star in the east, that actually is a weak interpretation of really what they're saying is we saw a star appear. Okay? I like that interpretation better. So they give the impression that all of a sudden it appeared out of nowhere. And it really caught their attention. And they just thought, this is from God. And so that's why I, I really think that it probably was a comet that just all of a sudden appeared in the horizon and they thought, boy, this is something from God and we're going to see where it leads us. Okay, so those are all the things that we really don't know, right? Now let's talk about what we do know here this morning. All right, we know from Matthew chapter 2 that this group from the east comes into Jerusalem. They come through the gates of Jerusalem and somehow it, it, it must be a significant group as we talked about because they get the attention of King Herod. 
Now, King Herod, I mean, is not, I mean, he's sort of isolated on himself in this huge palace, but they come in and they say, quote, in verse 2, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. Now, you don't have to be a theologian to, to see the irony here. This group of Gentiles, from far from the east somewhere, come into Jerusalem, the heart and the center of Jewish thought, history, teaching, instruction. They come into Jerusalem and they say to the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the teachers, we have seen the star in the east and we believe it's an indication of the Messiah and we have come to worship him. And their response? Duh. What? What are you talking about? They are clueless. And then, instead of saying, wow, I can't believe we missed it. You're right. Look at that. And they point to it. We need to also go and worship him. How do they respond? They are deeply disturbed. See, they don't respond and say, wow, look what God is doing. We need to be part of it. We need to see what God is doing. No. What they see is turmoil. Now, you have to understand what's going on here in the background. Of course, Judea is an occupied territory by the Rome, Romans, right? King Herod represents the Romans. The last thing the Jewish leaders want is anything that's going to disrupt the peace, disrupt the relationship between the Jews and the Romans. And there's always this ongoing tension, consistently. And King Herod's a pretty bad guy, all right? So it is nothing for him to all of a sudden lop off a few heads, you know, kill a few people. He's done it in his family. And the Jewish leaders, the last thing they want is somebody rising up amongst their ranks who all of a sudden is going to upset the apple cart amongst the Roman authorities. So their initial response is, oh, I can't believe that this group is talking about the king of the Jews. So they're more concerned about the political, social, economic situation than they are concerned about what God is doing in their midst. They're more concerned about their position, their status, than they are about seeing the power and what God might be doing. Now, they know the prophecies. Matter of fact, King Herod brings the teachers of the law into their midst. And King Herod says, where was the Messiah supposed to be born? And immediately, we read it right there in Matthew, they give him Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And they say to him, the prophecy right is said, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. So they know the prophecy, right? But they completely 
fail in acting on it. So what happens is the, um, the Magi leave Jerusalem and they head to Bethlehem going south, which is literally no more than five miles from Jerusalem. Do any of the Jewish leaders, teachers, anybody in Jerusalem go with them? No. No one. As far as we know, no one goes with them. They have all this knowledge. They know the prophecies. They see the sign in the sky. These, this large group comes from the east and tells them, and yet not one can act on it. Richard Glover, a commentator, said the following. He said, It is strange how much the scribes knew and what little use they made of it. I would say the following. A knowledge of God does not guarantee a love for God. You can have all the knowledge about the scriptures, all the background and theological teaching. You can have the status and the position. You can even be the authority. But you can miss completely what God is doing in your midst if you don't have a love for him. If it is all up here and there is nothing here, God will not and cannot use you for his glory. So why do the Magi make this effort to see Jesus? I mean, he's a baby. He's a toddler in a little town of two, three hundred people in Bethlehem. Why would they travel 900 miles to see a toddler? Well, who is Jesus? Who is this Messiah? When you open up your Bible... In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, what's the very first thing you read? Right, smacks you right in the face. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Chapter 1, verse 1. Makes no doubt about it. God is responsible for creating everything that we see everything who we are, everything that we know out of nothing, God created it. But when we look at the New Testament, it's shocking, because we often don't think about it, but this creation is the responsibility of Jesus. Let me just give you a few verses. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, referring to Jesus in the context it says, through whom he made the universe. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10. Again, referring to Jesus. In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. Again, about Jesus. For by him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth. All things were created by him and for him. <clears throat> this past summer, my son 
Ken and I went to the University of Arizona to do a little bit of research. And we had the privilege, apparently they have a large um, astronomy um, class or a large astronomy section. And they put together this theater that is in 3D, okay? It is the most incredible, fascinating theater I've ever seen in my life. And you sit there, and they, you wear the 3D glasses, and they bring out the universe, and, the, and literally, it's all 3D. It literally appears right above you, okay? So they, and they, they can control everything. It's not a movie or anything. They have all the controls. So they're explaining, they have a PhD student, graduate student, talking about the universe and all that. And so they come out and they bring you, they show you the Earth and its satellites, and then they zoom out, and it's all 3D. I mean, you're just fascinated. I mean, you're like right there. And they zoom out, and then they show you our universe with the planets and from different angles and all that. And then they continue to zoom out, and then they show you our Milky Way. And as they show you our galaxy, the Milky Way, all of a sudden our universe becomes a speck right? The sun becomes a speck. You sort of, you're constantly zooming out, zooming out, and all of a sudden you realize how small our universe is. Well, then they zoom out even more, and they start showing the expansions of everything, you know, and all of a sudden the Milky Way becomes a speck, and there are literally thousands and thousands of specks, and then they zoom out even more, and at the end they say, you know what? This is all we know. This is as far as the Hubble telescope has taken us. And then they show us that one group said, took the Hubble telescope and they did a, they, they narrowed, you know, typically the Hubble telescope can only see out so many million light years, right? But what they did is they narrowed it down to the narrowest they can, like a pinpoint in the sky. And they, they zeroed in to see as far out as they could possibly see. And they thought there was nothing in this. It was in the southern sky. They thought there was nothing there. They've never seen a star or anything on this little pin. Like they said, just as narrow as this, like a pinpoint in the sky. But when they zeroed the Hubble telescope going south in that direction, they were amazed to find out that there was three times further than they'd ever seen before. There were millions of more stars in that little pinpoint. And they realized that we see... I mean, our galaxy is a pin drop amongst millions of galaxies, billions of stars, and this is what we see, and literally, there's much more out there that we don't even know about, because we have no technology that can see that far out. And we read in the scriptures that Jesus created all of it. Everything. That is why there is no limit to his power, his omniscience. The God created everything that we see, that which we don't see, and he created us. Every one of us is here today by the grace and creative power of Jesus. And that is why the Magi were willing to go 900 miles to a foreign country as Gentiles to find their God. We read then in Matthew, they go down to Bethlehem. The star points out the house where Jesus is 
and they are overjoyed. Now, it's, a, it's interesting because that Greek word overjoyed only occurs twice in the New Testament. I mean, in the Gospels, in the Gospels. The only other time it's used in the Gospels is after Jesus is raised from the dead, raised again in the resurrection, and he appears before the disciples and he shows the disciples his hands with the wound marks, his feet, and it says the disciples were overjoyed. They couldn't contain their excitement. Jesus is alive! And the Magi, when they found the house, were overjoyed because they had found the living God in the flesh, Jesus. How they knew, I have no idea. Those Jews in Jerusalem were clueless as they sat there figuring out how to work the politics with the Romans. They are sitting on their hands and they are clueless and the Magi have know and see and understand the incarnation. Emmanuel, God with us, the creator, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the greatest miracle of all time that God has come in the form of man. And they walk into that room they see that toddler wrapped around his mom, Mary. They see that baby, and they bow down, and they worship him. You know, it is unbelievable, but the first people to worship Jesus are Gentiles. Think about that. Think about the message. It is a universal gospel. It is for all people of all time. And the first people to worship Jesus are Gentiles. You see, God is not impressed with what we know. He's impressed with who we love. He's impressed with our obedience and our love to him. You know, Matthew, when he writes this, I believe he is sending a clear message to the Jews. I mean, it's amazing that this story only appears in the Gospel of Matthew because Matthew is written to the Jewish audience. That's the apologetic of Matthew, okay? It's written clearly to the Jews. But I don't believe it's just in there by accident or Matthew thought, you know, I probably should put this story in there. Matthew is sending a message to the Jews. He's saying, don't be so confident and cocky about your status. Just because you come from the seed of Abraham doesn't mean that you're in. If you don't understand who Jesus is and respond in faith like these Gentiles did, you're out. God is not impressed with your knowledge or your teaching or even where you're positioned in Jerusalem. He's impressed with the heart. The heart that knows who Jesus is and worships 
and bows a knee. I, you know, it's a tremendous challenge for me. Okay? I can, I can give you some of my accomplishments. All right? I mean, I went to seminary. I have an MDiv. I even married Katie, who has an MDiv. I mean, come on. <laughs> I planted a church. I got ordained. I, Katie and I went overseas. We served overseas. Came back, pastored a church. And you know what? I know that none of that means anything if I don't have a love for God. If I sit back and I think, well, I've already served God. Look at the things that I've done. And my friends, God is not impressed. I mean, he is not impressed. He is saying to me and he's saying to us, do you love me? Do you know who I am? Do you know that I have created you? Do you know that I love you? Do you know that I have died for you? Do you know that I am your Savior? Do you know that everything that you have, every breath that you take, every day when the sun rises and sets, it is all by my creative power, and I love you, and I want you to know me and love me. A.W. Tozier, in The Pursuit of God, said the following. He said, quote, how tragic that we in this dark day have had our seeking done for us by our teachers. Everything made, well, everything is made to center upon the initial act of accepting Christ, and we are not expected thereafter to crave any further revelation of God to our souls. We have been snared in the coils of spurious logic, which insists that if we have found him, we need no more seek him. When the teachers of the law asked Jesus, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? What did he say? Amen. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. My friends, that is the greatest commandment that we love God we love Jesus and I believe we love him we worship him we bow the knee to him when we remember and we know who he is and what he has given to us when we know that he is the creator that everything that we have everything that we see the heavens the earth Everything was created by him out of nothing. That he's given us the breath of life. Everything that we own, every privilege that we enjoy, everything from A to Z is through Jesus. How can we not bow the knee? How can we not worship him? How can we not lift our hands and praise him? The Jews missed it, but the Gentiles got it. And this morning, we're going to give all of us the opportunity to worship him as we come and celebrate communion together. We're going to invite the, uh, the elders to come up.
And basically, we're going to have a time of worship here, and we're just going to remember that Jesus is our Lord. And as we're, ser as we're served the elements together, let's just remember what Jesus has done for us. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. And use this time to really reflect and worship and praise Him. Respond to the fact that He is come in flesh for us, that we can know Him personally.